Welcome to 2.23am, where we seek to enable individuals to express their wholeness through enterprise that serves the well-being of all. I'm Christine McDougall. My guest today is Frederick Leloux, author of the very important management and business book, Reinventing Organisations. I consider this one of the most important books on business and management systems of this last decade, if not also of the next decade. Frederick has researched those rare organisations around the world who have thrown away the traditional top-down organisational structure and adopted organisations of distributed intelligence and distributed power. These organisations are located all around the world across multiple industries and many have been in operation for decades in very tough markets. Yet they outperform every time, even though performance is not necessarily the main goal. If you are someone who yearns for organisations that operate with fluidity, that have no extra layers of management, no HR department, no sales department, for example, that enables everyone to have power of choice and action, freeing up the CEO to focus on creativity and stewardship, then you will love this interview and you will certainly love the book. For show notes and links, visit www.blog.223am.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. It's a revolution. Today my guest is Frederick Laloux. Uh, Frederick is the author of a book called Reinventing Organizations, which was published this year. And I personally have experienced as simply one of the best business books. I was going to say of this decade, but, you know, at least the last 10 years. Um, Frederick is in Belgium and where it's morning there, it's afternoon in Australia. Welcome, Frederick. It's lovely to have you. Yes, I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion. So... I have already given you the heads up that our opening question is what wakes you at 2.23 a.m., which you can answer either literally or metaphorically. Well, tonight I, I actually was woken up by, um, by what I discovered this morning to be at the full moon. It, sounds, it seems like I'm getting more sensitive to this, which I wasn't previously. Um, but um, sometimes I do get, you know, I do wake up, I... I'm blessed by having a life full of exciting projects, and, and so when I do sometimes wake up, it's, it's just because my mind is, is spinning and, and creative, and, and sometimes I've uh, noticed I, I just need to get up and, and actually be creative in that moment rather than, than fight it and, and then maybe sleep a little later during the day. Um, but, but to your question about, you know, metaphorically. Um, yes. It's... Hmm, uh, there's something that is just starting to emerge with me, which is, um, you know, the the acknowledgement uh, um, and the the sadness um, that comes with um, the wounds that we're inflicting on the planet mm-hmm. and and onto ourselves. Um, and um, you know, I'm 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 blessed to to be generally very um, optimistic and you know looking at the at the future in you know the thinking that um, we have all it takes that the, the universe is abundant and we have all it takes to um, to make it through um, but sometimes mm. i I do stop and I think you know I have young young children and i I sometimes do wonder you know what kind of questions our children and, and grandchildren will, will ask us I think they will ask us some really, really tough questions, um, mm. and, uh, and we might not necessarily have the answers to, you know, why why we're doing what we're doing um, as a, you know, as a as a species um, collectively. And, yes. Um, and so sometimes, you know, they I, I tend to be to be thinking and positively, creatively, and you know how, you know, how could I do my part? Um, what could I contribute? And and just to share with you my. You know, my latest th- stream of thought. I think it it started uh, yesterday or or the day before. I was um, I was having this this thought of thinking, um, you know, how can we help you know the um, the, the CEOs of very large corp- corporations, the CEOs of 
um, of powerful corporations uh, or um, powerful politicians to act on what they know, you know, is happening, mm. but that they are they seem to be blind to. And and I was thinking, you know, there there are a few CEOs who who take courageous steps. Um, you know, the the CEO of of Unile- Unilever is. Uh, yes. Is taking some very serious steps for Unilever, and it's um, it's bold. And you know, if if in two or three years um, this doesn't work out, you know, he might well lose his uh, his job over it. And, mm. and I was thinking, we need many more people who dare to take these risks because ultimately, you know, if they if they try and fail, what have they really lost? You know, they will have mm. lost their job. And so I'm thinking, I was thinking, you know, big deal. <laughs> Most of these people have enough money if they lose their job. You know, to make it, you know, through yeah. the rest of their lives. So, what's the big deal of taking those risks? Yes. And it, I think it has all to do with, you know, their fear and their need for recognition. Right? They've been highly successful, and they don't want to go down in history as as people who've taken a risk and then and then, and then failed. And mm. so I, you know, as my mind was spinning, I was thinking we should do something where we collectively, just thousands and thousands, ten thousands of us, somehow show these people that they would be heroes, whatever happens. Mm. You know, I, I was, you know, this is just one of my crazy thoughts, but thinking, yeah. about, you know, everyone, you know, t- today we're, we're often very confrontational, right? We, we, yes. we, 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 we tend to blame powerful people for their greed and, you know, for, for, you know, for all the bad things they do. How about we send them massively love letters by saying, you know, go for it. And if you fail, you'll still be our hero. We'll still love you. Yeah. You know, that these people feel like, okay, I will go down as the good guy in history, yeah. You know, if I've if I've tried, and if I've been, you know, if I've been too bold and I failed, that's okay. You know, history will yeah. remember me as a as a good guy. Maybe we should, mm. you know, all send them cakes and flowers and. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so, so these are the kind of things that, that keep me awake at night. Is is how can we, you know, how can we break the, um, the current spiral we're in and and, and this kind of gloom, uh, that we're often in, um, and this this sense of powerlessness. And, and how yes. by, by shifting perspectives, uh, you know, instead of blaming powerful people, you know, how could we love them? <laughs> and how yes. can we, by, by changing that perspective, you know, potentially open up new new avenues to uh, to get, engage people in a, in a different future? Wow. Okay. So, um, well, of <laughs> course, um, you, you may or may not know that, that that last piece is really the, the primary impulse behind uh, 2.23 a.m., uh, and so it really is. Um, we we you know we don't want to see business as the bad guys. Um, and, and you sort of spoke into this um, the, the the very senior business people and the and the politicians. Uh, I I agree with you. I actually think that they know, and and I'm, I'm not sure that they're blind to it. I, I my suspicion is that there there's a sense of entrapment in a system that. Um, they're not sure how to get out of or how to 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 do that and and i agree with you you know there's there's there needs to be the um the incident the one person that the incendiary incident or something like that the one person or two people that um that that sort of says no i'm not going to go this way or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. But yeah, you know, this is the question. (laughs) This is the question that I sit in on, in almost constantly. um, Is is how do you bring these people together who I believe actually would really like to find a better way and and support you know a a way of moving forward. (laughs) I love the massive, massive uh, love letters and cakes and flowers and and uh, and and and, uh, that's that's really delightful. So uh, what I'd really love to hear is you have you have written this extraordinary book and uh just so that my audience cuz uh, Frederick and I this is I, you know we haven't actually met and spent any time together other than I've read your book and we've had a few email dialogues and so I I know very little about what brought you to this point that you you go out and spend the time 
to uh, write reinventing organizations and do the massive uh, research and the dialogue and the conversation and put together uh, such a beautifully structured and accessible uh, body of work. I'd love to hear you know, about how your journey to that point and why this is really important for you and, and why this became a, 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 um, such a significant part of your life. <laughs> I'm wondering if you want to... The shorter, the longer version, because uh, um, I, I found, I, I think, as, as probably many people do, that when you do something, work that's, that feels really important, that feels kind of like your, your soul's work, that, that, you know, yes. when I look back, it almost seems like, like pretty much everything in my life has sort of prepared me for, for this book. Yes. Um, yeah. And that, that's, I could tell a long story, but, but to make it not too long, I... Um, uh, you know, I, I've been for a long time in in management consulting, um, working with uh, with this uh, firm called McKinsey for quite a quite a number of years. Um, mm-hmm. And then at some point, I discovered that my um, my real passion and, and, and calling was in coaching people and in, in facilitation of um, executive committees to have yes. you know the kind of conversation that typically don't happen um, at these levels, right, which are yes. conversations where people for a minute um, feel safe enough to drop their mask and, and to inquire into deeper questions um, mm-hmm. that, they, that they're normally not allowing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I just discovered I, I seem to have a um, sort of a natural talent to where people feel safe enough to, to do that for, for a while, um, yes. to drop their mask and, and go a bit deeper. And um, and for a number of years, that work has felt tremendously fulfilling to me. And um, yes. and I thought that I had discovered my calling, and that you know this was it. You know, this is going to be me for yes. the next for the next twenty, thirty years. Um, and then after just a few years, um, you know, the kind of life gave me a signal that you know, hey, no, <laughs> that that was it for a number of years. But but there's something else that you that you need to do. And 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 the signal came in. In form of a um, of a lack of energy and and actually of a of a deep sense of sadness that that came over me one day and I, in the beginning I just couldn't place it because it um, everything in my life was going really really great um, you know my work was really fulfilling and the family side everything was fantastic and um, I was making good money I wasn't working too hard it, you know it was just I felt like I had the jackpot and suddenly there, there was this this sadness and it took me a week or two to um, to understand what was behind it, and I, and what I what I saw was that it was a, um, a form of mourning of this work that I had liked so much, and that suddenly I realized I I couldn't do anymore, and I and I couldn't do it because um, by doing over the years a fair bit of of a you know personal journey, doing quite a bit, a fair bit of personal development and, and a bit of a spiritual journey, I found that mm-hmm. I had. Um, you know, I had grown to a place that was quite far away from where, you know, most of the um, CEOs and executives that I was working with were at. And there was mm. something in me that was tired of this um, this game of, of translation I was constantly in. You know, this yeah. the game of how far can I go in telling them what I believe before, you know, they will kick me out of the room. Yeah. And, um, and and I was just I was just tired of that, um, and I realized I wasn't just tired of that. That I there was just something in me that that wasn't that just didn't want to work with these traditional large corporations anymore. There was just something in me that when I just entered the you know the lobbies of these you know these big banks and pharma companies I was working with, that where I just felt that everything was just so soulless. You know the the yeah. marble and the glass of you know and of, of these buildings and, and, and people just running around, you know, frenetically um, and, you know, talking about, you know, one more um, change program they were doing and cross-functional initiative and, you know, the budget of next year and, you know, the, the three-year midterm planning that they were doing. And, and it was just part of me that <laughs> it was looking at all of that and was thinking, like, do we actually still believe any of this? <laughs> like, yeah. for me, yeah. it, it just suddenly didn't make any sense anymore. Um, yes. Yeah. And... 
And so it was it was very clear. It was kind of from one day to the other that I, you know, this work that had been so meaningful, I, I just couldn't and didn't want to do it anymore. And so um, at that moment then emerged, of course, the question, so so what then? You know, what, what's next? Um, and and um, at that moment I had a, well, what to me was a profound insight. It, it, you know, it, 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 it might sound kind of... Um, Trivial or obvious when I when I say it, but to me at the time it was very meaningful. Uh, that I had the intuition that I shouldn't be asking myself what my next you know job would be or my ne- next source of income, you know what what I would put on my business card, but that instead I I should just inquire into what would be the most meaningful thing I could do, mm-hmm. and not even the most impactful you know, over the long term, or, you know, how can I have the most impact in the world, something, just what would be now, right now, the most meaningful thing I could do? Um, because I, I I came to trust that, you know, if I if I do the most meaningful thing I can do, then then somehow the universe will will help and will provide me with an income. I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, if that I do the most meaningful thing I can do and that the universe wouldn't help me. <laughs> mm-hmm. so I said, like, yes. let me not even worry about income. Um, yes. And let me just and and when I asked that question, and the answer was immediate. There were two projects that were very, very dear to me, and one of them ended up being being this book. And, and the the thought behind it was, you know, there's more and more people out there like like us that you know do a fair bit of a personal journey and, and come to see things differently, and yes. who from that perspective find life and organizations that we have today very unfulfilling, right? And there's more and more um, executives that leave the, the business world simply because they don't want to play by, you know, that game anymore. Um, yes. you know, they're tired of the, the politics and the budgets and, and all of that. Um, but it's not, not only in, in corporations. There's, you know, there's more and more teachers who leave the school system. Yes. Um, there's more and more nurses and doctors who leave the hospitals because our hospitals have become these kind of soulless factories, Um where we've kind of lost track of you know, what it really means to care for people. And, and so, so it's happening all around us. Um, and I was thinking, quite a few of these people, like me, you know, stand at the fringes of the system and, and kind of coach and consult back into it. But I was thinking, yes. some of these people must have restarted organizations. You know, some of these doctors and nurses must have maybe restarted a hospital, or some of these teachers okay. at school, or some of these corporates in other business. Yes. But that... But then they will probably have questioned that whole management paradigm that doesn't suit us anymore. Yeah. And, and so that was really the starting base. Can I find, are there out there, you know, some people like that who have recreated, have started a new business on entirely different foundations, something that would be, you know, just much more soulful and purposeful than, than what we have today. And, and so that was the starting base. And, and so I, I started... Looking into it, I, at first I started seeing, you know, has somebody written on this? Maybe somebody has already written. Yes, I didn't yes. really find anything that it was that that, that, that was going in this in this, this direction that I, that I had in mind. And so I started looking for organizations. I came across one, two, three, four, five really extraordinary organizations that kind of fundamentally, you know, put aside, you know, the whole management edifice that you know we're being taught in business school and had really one by one reinvented all of the basic structures and practices of management. I mean, how you make decisions, how you recruit people, how you evaluate people, how you compensate people, um, you know, how you make budgets, how you make targets, how you make strategies, you know, all of that, they had invented something different and, and just radically more powerful and soulful. And, and what got me really excited was when I started noticing that these different organizations, and some were schools, some were hospitals, some were you know, for-profit businesses, other were non-profits, um, operated almost in identical ways very mm-hmm. often, even though they didn't know of each other. Yeah. And that, to me, wasn't really, really exciting because I felt, hey, it's not just, you know, some mad experimenting that's going on. It sounds like, you know, after much trial and error, there is one coherent new way to structure and run organizations, one coherent new management paradigm that seems to be emerging yes. and that is consistent with this kind of consciousness that is also emerging in the world right now. 
mm-hmm. and that got, got me then really really excited and and then I decided hey I let me write a a book on that and what was important to me is that the book would be both um, conceptually theoretically really grounded to really understand hey you know what what are the deeper things going on here and yeah. at the same time really really practical so that people who want to create you know similar organizations can yeah. have almost almost a how to guide kind of looking you know practice by practice you mm-hmm. know okay so i don't want to do these you know these uh, horrible budget exercises but then what do i what do i do you know i, I don't want to have the the pyramid i don't want to be this boss at the top that you know has to approve all decisions um but if it's not a pyramid, then, then what? <laughs> yeah. so I wanted to, to really suggest very concrete answers um, using the case examples of these organizations I had studied for all of these, for all of these questions. So how on earth did you find these organizations? Because they're all over the place. I mean, <laughs> there's not that many of them, I might add, but, and you had a specific category. Uh, but how did you find them? Um, that was actually the, the hardest part. Um, uh, I thought that, that when I would find one or two of them, that yeah. then they would tell me you know, where, where others were. I thought these organizations would know each other. And, and one yeah. of the surprises for me was that they didn't. They, um, mm. they often thought they were the only you know, crazy, crazy fools who dared to, you know, to, to, to question the, the current management thinking to, to that yeah. extreme degree. And... Um, and so, you know, I just sort of, I found them through many different ways. I, I just let a lot of people around me know that I was doing this research. And so, you yes. know, some people told me, hey, you should check out this one or that one. I found the, the odd article that somebody had written on, mm-hmm. on one of these organizations. Um, but, um, sometimes a book had already mentioned one yes. of them. Um, what was interesting to me was the fact that you know, so few people know about these organizations, and I didn't know about any of them before I, I started doing the the research. Even though they're big organizations, I mean, they mm. have at least a you know a few hundred, and most of them have a few thousand employees, and they are uh, each of them in their own way is spectacularly successful yeah. um, in bringing about a great purpose, in providing an extraordinary place of work, and including they're they're very very successful. In terms, in financial terms, in terms of bottom line, in terms of market share, and yeah. yet nobody had yet had yet written much about them. Um, mm. You know, at, at most there was kind of the, you know, the the odd article that would describe one of them, and, and typically the article would go something like, you know, here's a strange animal, here's a strange organization <laughs> that is incredibly successful. Um, yet when you look at how they operate. You know, we, we just don't really understand it. Somehow this, this shouldn't be working. Somehow this, this thing should crumble at some point um, because yeah. this, just defies, this just defies, you know, conventional logic. Um, and so, you know, these were articles that were, you know, written in a tone that, would, that, that was half admiring and half dismissive because it just didn't make much sense. And it's, it's all, I think only when you look at a number of these organizations side by side in you that you see that there's, of course, you know, a really powerful logic behind the madness. Um, yeah. And, and so I think, you know, the power is to, to look at these organizations, um, you know, across their different industries and geographies. Um, and then you, you start to understand that there, there are some real commonalities, even though one, you know, might be a factory and the other one might be a retailer and, and the third one might be a school and the fourth one a hospital. And then, of course, there's some variations. There's some processes that, of course, need to be different, because the yeah. industry ca- characteristics are, are different. And so I, I feel we have now enough examples to be able to describe quite in detail you know, what is common to all these models and, and you know, what, what elements can and need to be adapted to the kind of mm. you know, industry and context these organizations are operating in. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that's some of the beauty about uh, the organizations that you've discovered because you showcase. I don't know exactly how many, but there's maybe 14 or so in the book, um, in quite a, quite an amount of detail, and and they're all over the world, and they're as you've already mentioned, they're from many different industries, and some of them are uh, have been operating for a number of decades, and uh, you know in very tough markets, 
and, and you know so so the usual um the usual things that that a uh, that could be uh, you know someone who go who challenges the model is not it, it doesn't really apply because it's like they've they've shown sort of long term endurance in some very tough markets uh high levels of competition very different industries um and all of that sort of stuff and yet here they are this kind of uh, oasis in a desert <laughs> or the or as you said that this really strange animal but it it um you know it, it it's quite extraordinary and uh, the other thing that that i find remarkable and beautiful at the same time is that they none of them knew each other and yet the model that they ended up with is so similar in so many ways, which says something really wonderful in in that in that own right. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little bit about uh, your given that you immersed yourself in this for how many years was this project? For you how long did three it take of, you from three years? Three years okay. of researching and writing. Um, yeah, and so you immersed yourself in this. So it, 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 the to say a little bit about um, this wonderful emergence of these globally diverse uh, companies doing these extraordinary things. And, and actually, before we go there, um, for the audience that hasn't read your book, um, and everyone should be reading your book, <laughs> and so the links will be in the show notes, um, is, is say a little bit more about some of the, some of the sort of the features of the... Uh, similar features that that uh, sort of map across these companies. Yeah, so in, in, you know, if my research is correct, then then I I've seen um, you know a number of fundamental breakthroughs, a number of fundamental departures from our current understanding of, of management. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them, for instance. Um, is that they have have found ways to shift um, the structures and practices um, to something more powerful than the pyramid and the layers of hierarchy that you know today are needed to run organizations. Right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've grown up with this idea that you know if you have a, a group of people of you know more than you know the size of more than three or four, you know you, you need to have someone in charge. Yes, and definitely, if you have dozens or hundreds or thousands of people, you know you need not only one boss, but then you need a you know sort of cascade of of bosses. You need layers of hierarchy. Yes, um, and you know that that kind of makes sense. We've we've all grown up with this idea. We we more and more tend to find this very very limiting and, and frustrating. We we see the downsides of of that model, right? That you know too many decisions mm. get made at the top, and it triggers all sorts of politics and infighting and um, and people at the bottom feel often very powerless and, um, and demotivated. But, but hey, that's that's just the best model that that that, that we have. So, so we, we we cling to it. Um, and when you look around, um, you know, other than an organization, you know, an all truly complex system, they operate on principles and practices that are much more powerful than the pyramid or hierarchy. Right? Mm-hmm. If you look at something like the human body or if you look at the human brain, you know, the human brain has 85 billion cells. And you know, at any m- moment in time, you know, a few billions of them are active at the same time. And, and all of that happens in parallel. There isn't one, one nerve cell that says, hey, I'm the CEO. And the yeah. other few nerve cells are my executive <laughs> committee. And we will try to control everything. Right? And when you have a good thought, yeah. you know, bring it up to us and we will look at it. And we will, you know, we yeah. will agree or disagree. Um, and approve or disapprove your thought. Um, We'd be a mess if so, we were that. <laughs> and so yeah. that we have, you know, these, you know, 85 billion cells that operate um, with their very clear structure, their very clear coordinating yeah. mechanisms, but there, but there isn't a boss. And if you look around, you know, our our global economy doesn't have a boss. Right? We've, we've, you know, nobody dreams of running the global economy like, um, you know, like the Soviet Union did. Uh, we with a yeah. central master plan. You know, we've given up on that. Um, but for some strange reasons, we still do that within organizations, right? We still run yeah. our organizations uh, with a sort of central, 
you know, planning committee that we call the executive committee. Um, yeah. And so what these new types of organizations have found is that they've cracked the code to import these very powerful systems of distributed intelligence that yes. we find all around us in nature and ecosystems and the human body and the global economy and traffic systems. They've, they found a way to import these practices and principles into organizations. So you shift to something that is more powerful than a pyramid in the hierarchy, and which is a system where no one is the boss of anyone else, right? So where no one holds power over anyone else. But then there's, of course, all mm. other coordinating mechanisms that are used. So it's, it, you know, it's not flatland by any means. It's not just anybody can do whatever they want. There, there are some very, very clear ways of operating in these organizations. They're just totally different from what we're, what we're used yeah. to. Um, and they're just dramatically more powerful and agile. And what happens is that power is no longer a zero-sum game. In, in these organizations, strangely enough, everyone is powerful. You know, everyone who feels that something needs to change has the power to make that happen. You, you don't need yeah. to convince a boss. You don't need to make PowerPoint slides. You don't need to, um, you know, get given approval. And there, there's some other much more powerful ways to to make things happen. So, so that's mm. one of the first breakthroughs um, is to be able to operate on principles that are more powerful than hierarchy, and so no one is the boss of anyone else. And there's a whole host of Practices and of course that need to be upgraded, right? In today's organization, the um, you know the boss decides on you know who he can hire, and you know the boss evaluates his subordinates, and he decides who gets a raise, and he decides who gets fired, and you know bosses decide on, on appointments and role allocations and all of that. And so mm-hmm. you know all of, all of that, these organizations have had to find a way to make it work um, based on entirely different systems, peer-based systems. Um, yes. that tend to be much more robust and, and have much more collective intelligence baked in because you know, it, it now not only depends on one boss who can make a good or a bad decision, but on process of, of collective intelligence. This day is quite, quite abstract. You know, if we had more time, then I could dive into you know, how, how that really operates in practice, but, uh, but I, you know, I hope yeah. it gives at least a sense of what's happening, yeah. the shift that's involved. I, yeah. It, it certainly, I, I think, for a lot of people listening, they'll go, "Yes, how that? How does that work?" And and uh, Frederick, I think you answer that question so beautifully um, in the book and the way that you've laid it out. As you said, it's it has the conceptual, but also the real practical element. It, of course, what you've just proposed raises this wonderful question: <laughs> No one is the boss, pretty much. Um, that requires. Interestingly, the paradox is that that requires an extraordinary form of leadership to want to generate that type of organization where even the leader, founder, entrepreneur, CEO, however you want to language that, it largely needs to relinquish the traditional role of uh, power and leadership. So, am I? Am I? Um, is that a comment that you Absolutely. would agree with? Absolutely. Yeah. So, the the precondition for this to work is that you have a founder or a CEO who fully gets this new perspective and really wants it to happen. Right. Mm. And so, um, in some of the organizations I researched, were founded by someone who had this thought from the very beginning that he wanted to do things differently or she wanted to do things differently, uh, yeah. not knowing exactly what that meant, but, but very clear on what they didn't want to do. And then they discovered that, you know, that this new ways of operating along the way. And, and some of these organizations were traditional organizations, and they had a new CEO, and the, and the new CEO, you know, all-powerful as they tend to be you know, in the pyramid, yeah. um, made this, this kind of paradoxical decision you know, where he uh, kind of his last act of top-down authority imposes a system where he yeah. no longer has top-down authority. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, it, it does require people who view things quite differently. And, um, and what they find is, um, you know, of course, interviewed uh, quite, quite a lot of them, is that they, um, you know, it, 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 might, it might seem scary in the beginning because 
you now suddenly, as a CEO, have to play by the same rules as the other ones. So you're still totally powerful like everyone else. You can still make things happen. But using other um, you know, mechanisms of collective intelligence, um, you can't yeah. just do it by brute force because you, know, you happen to be the CEO. Um, and so there's something of, that, that seems like giving up power or giving up control. Um, but what they've noticed is that in these new structures, the power and the control is really baked into the system, not into the people. Okay. And so what they've found is, paradoxically, a huge relief of not having to be the one that controls and puts pressure on the system. Right? In today's mm. organization, you know, pressure is kind of, you know, you know the, the role of the CEO very often is to put pressure on the whole system, and that pressure then cascades down, right? So let's say people make, up, make a, a bottom-up um, budget, and the numbers yeah. you know, don't seem high, ambitious enough. Then the CEO will say, yeah. no, 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 you know, we need to double the ambition. And then he, yeah. he pushes that down, and then people will somehow have to take these numbers and you know, increase their own targets. And, right? and so the CEO feels, if I'm not constantly making sure that, that people are ambitious, if I don't constantly put pressure onto the system, mm-hmm. then you know, somehow people will just slack off, then somehow we won't get the kind of results that I'm, that I'm looking for. So it's really, you know, the burden is all on his shoulders to be constantly yeah. vigilant and to constantly pile pressure onto people. Yeah. And in this new system, all of that is baked into the system, not onto people anymore. Yes. And so there's just a, a tremendous relief where, you know, the, the CEO, quote-unquote, um, can now go back to actually doing really creative work again. Um, yes. Can do really fun work and, and doesn't just need to be constantly controlling, uh, you know, the, the system and, and be vigilant that, you know, that people are ambitious enough. Yeah. So you, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, there's an extraordinary quality that's required for somebody to be able to move into this space. Um, and, and if we sort of circle back to where we were wanting to love everybody and, and give them cakes and flowers, <laughs> and there's, there's this, this, um, uh, there's this to, to actually be able to hold that position of relinquishing the sort of the control and the the the, the old model and also the the power and the all of the things that go with that the status and 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 really releasing that that takes an extraordinary character yes and no um you see what i found is that when i ask you know that that same question to yeah. you know, some of these ceos by saying you know this is really extraordinary what you know what you've done you've given up so much control and you you know how do you deal with you know the anxieties of, of giving up control and 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 all of them looked at me kind of puzzled um, because you see once you've once you've passed the threshold once you see the world you know mm. with these somewhat different lenses like most of mm. these CEOs do they they've done a, a fair bit of a personal or spiritual journey then yes. this way of operating is just the one way that makes sense, that feels right. The, the old model just feels, would feel awkward. They just wouldn't want to be, yeah. you know, the guy at, uh, you know, at the top of the pyramid. That would just feel, would just feel bad. And, and I, in, in some ways, I understand them. Like, today I'm you know, very happy not to be leading an organization, but if ever I was to found one, I would naturally use that model because that model just fits who I am today or how I view the world today. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so they, they didn't have... You know, a sense that they were doing something extraordinary. Yes, they, they of course realized that they were doing stuff that was very, very different from the cultural mainstream, because people keep reminding them that what they're doing is, yes. is strange and a bit crazy. Um, but for them, that's just the that's just the only way they they want to do things. Um, and it, it, so it seems like you know it doesn't come with with much you know anguish or even it doesn't feel like for them like they've had much courage in doing this. This is yes. just you know, the, the natural way for them. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of times both in your, in your, own, your own personal journey and, and um, in the journey of the leaders and CEOs of the organizations that you cover in reinventing organizations, 
this personal and spiritual journey. Uh, And so can you say a little bit more about that and the significance of that? Um, Yes, and I don't want to to make it sound like it's, you know, one and the same for everyone. Everyone, you know, all of the, um, you know, quote-unquote CEOs or founders of these organizations have really their own, very own character and their very own journey. Um, Some have a spiritual outlook, others don't. Um, And, um, you know, some have done real explicit personal work, um, you know, personal development, and and, and others haven't. So, um, but, but there's something, I think, common to all of them is that they've grown um, to adopt a, um, a perspective uh, where they have their ego very much in check. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, people who are familiar with developmental psychology you know, might have heard about people like you know, Maslow or Ken Wilber or Spiral Dynamics. You know, this has been much studied that you know, as human beings, we kind of grow in in stages, in in the yeah. way we, you know, look at the world and deal with the world, and and so you know you could characterize these people as being, you know, in what some people call second tier or self-actualizing or yellow or teal, um, basically at the stage where um, they have this identified from their ego. They they can look at their own ego and kind of laugh a little bit about it, right? They can look at their own ego. Yeah. They need to. To look good, they need to to succeed. They need to be they need to be right and kind of laugh about it, which many CEOs of today's organizations can't. Right? They, they're fused with their ego. You know, they, they yeah. need to yeah. succeed. They need for status. They need for wealth. It's, it's very much what what drives them. Right? And there's lots of yeah. actually fears and insecurities underneath that. Right? And that brings us back to yeah. the flowers and cakes and stuff. Right? And, <laughs> and helping them overcome these these fears. Yeah. Um, and so what, what these CEOs, one of the things that they have in, in, in common is that they're not driven as much as you know, traditional CEOs would be by the fears of their ego. They have yeah. seen them, they have identified them, they can laugh about them, they can go like, oh, you know, here, here it goes again, my need to control. Okay, mm-hmm. let me just forget about it again, right, and, and just trust the system. Um, and so that, that's one I think, fundamental precondition uh, to be able to run organizations in this way. Yes. Right? Um, maybe I can just share a story because I, um, yes, I don't please. want this all to, to sound too distracted. <laughs> um, yeah, no, please. The thing, you know, once it, you know, hit it home for me, and I, I tell the story in a book. Um, so one of the principles of how you make decisions in these organizations where there's no more hierarchy is in essence something I call the advice process. So um, anyone can make any decision. So really, you know, a machine operator can buy himself a new machine that, that might cost a million dollars, um, provided they seek advice from people who will be impacted by the decision, who you know, will have to live with it, and people who have expertise in the matter. And, and so there are little processes of collective intelligence that need to happen. He needs to seek advice. He doesn't need to make a watered-down compromise, but he just needs to seek advice and really think about it all and then come to, you know, his best conclusion and make the best decision he can. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a new decision-making mechanism that is neither consensus, you know, no top-down. And this applies to everyone, including, you know, founders, sometimes, you know, 100% owners of their company. So, you know, yeah. they, they can no longer make decisions without abetting by this advice process. So they must seek advice from people who will be impacted by the decision or who have expertise. Yeah. And there's this, you know, one person, a really extraordinary person called Jos de Bloch. He's the founder in the Netherlands of an organization called Beurtzor. Extraordinary organization. They, he started in late 2006, and, you know, he's grown it to 80% market share in neighborhood nursing, so nurses that work in people's home rather than hospitals. 80% yeah. market share simply because all the nurses and the clients are deserting traditional um, suppliers because, you know, what, what Birdsock does is just so extraordinary. And so he has 8,000 nurses running around the country, the Netherlands. And when he wants to make a decision that, you know, affects all of these nurses, say he wants to change, you know, some way, 
you know, um, overtime is calculated. Yeah. He needs to play by the advice process. Now, he, you know, he, so he should ask all of the 8,000 nurses for their advice. Now, that, that's not very practical. He's not going to call mm-hmm. all of them. And so he found a very simple and elegant way to do that. So whenever he has, you know, something that he wants to change that affects everyone, he typically does it when he's home at night at 10 p.m. He sits down on his couch uh, with his computer, and he writes a little blog post on their internal social network where he just say, where he says, like, you know, over time, been thinking about it, you know, the current system is problematic. Um, here's my proposal. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And he, he just sends it out in the minute, you know, with his typos and all. It doesn't go through, you know, communication department. Uh, it doesn't go, you know, through his head of HR or the executive committee. By the way, he doesn't have an H- head of HR and he doesn't have an executive committee. And, I was going to um, say, they're not, they're not there, those departments. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so he just sends it out, you know, with whatever typo, and, and it goes out. And by, because he's very respected in the company, um, by the same time the next evening, um, you know, probably 6,000, 6,500 of the 8,000 nurses will have read his message. And yeah. a few dozens or maybe a few hundreds will have commented on his message. And, yeah. you know, basically one or two or three things might happen. You know, that either all the comments kind of, sort of go, you know, in, in a sense of approval, kind of say, hey, yeah, what you say makes total sense. You know, I'm all for it. Yeah. And then the decision is made and it's taken 24 hours, right? Um, yeah. Or, you know, and it sometimes happens. People tell him, hey, well, you know, what, what were you thinking? You know, this doesn't make, yeah. doesn't make any sense. You know, here's a piece of information you might not be aware of um, that we know in the field, and, you know, what you say really doesn't make any sense, which sometimes happens too. And all these comments, you know, you know, come in under his blog post. They're public to see. You can't erase them. Um, and, you know, so after 24 hours, the next evening, Jos de Bloch sits again on his couch and either sees that everyone agrees and he says, okay, you know, deal, that's a decision. Um, or he sees that they, they all disagree uh, or that a substantial part disagrees. And then he just writes another message saying, oops, you know, I'm sorry. You know, matter might be more complicated than I thought. Um, you know, here's a revised proposal. Or, you know, maybe this is so complicated, you know, maybe we should get a, a team of volunteers together to try to crack it. Yeah. And, and that's just the kind of example of egolessness yeah. of somebody just daring to throw something out there to 8,000 people, have all the, co- you know, the comments being public, and being willing the next day to just say, oops, oh, you know, apparently this was more complicated than I thought. You know, thank you yeah. for pointing it out to me. Let me revise mm-hmm. my, my proposal. And, mm-hmm. and most CEOs would find this to be you know, incredibly daring, like incredibly confronting. Yeah. You know, and, and so they, they, they would want the whole thing to be thought through and to be polished and to be, right? Yeah. And, and a guy like Sosa Bloch just goes like, you know, what, you know what, what's the big deal? You know, people tell me that I was wrong. So, so what's the big deal, right? And so, <laughs> um, but what I find beautiful about this example is all the possibilities that open up when you have your ego in check like, like he has. And one of the possibilities is to have these incredibly fast and efficient decision-making cycles, I mean, yeah. he's really this one guy who just has an idea, and 24 hours later, you know, there's a decision. Yeah. Um, and that the whole organization knows about and, and stands behind. Now, now, if you compare that with what a traditional organization would do, you know, he would probably tell his head of HR of his idea. The head of HR would probably delegate that to a junior person in HR that would probably then draft something, would make a meeting with the head of HR, and, you know, and then it would get revised. And, and then that would then bring when the head of HR would be satisfied with it, yeah. that would be brought to the executive committee that would probably haggle with it and, you know, it might come back a week later. Then it would go to some communication department who would really wordsmith it. And then it would be sent out with probably a communication plan, um, you know, that would be then cascaded through the different levels of management. I mean, imagine the energy and the number of meetings yeah. needed for this. We yeah. might still end up with a decision that doesn't make any sense because these people haven't gotten the yes. feedback from the, from the ground that draws the block yet. And, and so yes. these are just, just, just one little example of these dramatic gains in, in efficiency and, and, and speed that you get when you, you know, shift to you know, a whole different system that you yes. know, doesn't rely on the, on the pyramid and the hierarchy.
Yes, and just to point out, I know you mentioned it, but just to highlight again, the decision-making process um, is not a consensus process. It's it is um, it, um, which has become prevalent in some organisations. Yeah, you're right to point that out because many people mm-hmm. there's so much misunderstanding when we talk about self-management. When we, when we yes. talk about you know organisations without hierarchy, um, people immediately get wrong ideas. You know, just organizations where yeah. we're just taking hierarchy out where there's no boss where um, and so they either imagine it's chaos or they imagine it's like slow and horrible consensus um, seeking yes. and that's not the yes. case you know it's, it's really shifting to entirely different set of structures and practices it's not just taking hierarchy out it's, it's you know shifting to something entirely different yes yes so I'm going to circle back because we're sort of um, um, reaching, I couldn't, can't believe it, but the time's gone so quickly. Um, what I, there's a couple of things that I'm really interested in. Um, when you went through this, this, uh, this process where the work that you were really loving um, and you found it lack of energy and so on, and then you, you asked the question, the inquiry, um, what would be the most meaningful thing I could do? And this sort of knowing that the universe would help you to keep yourself sustained in all different dimensions around that. How did that unfold? I mean, you 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 took on this project um, uh, uh, to, to be yeah you know, over a course of three years. Yeah, and so how and how how did you how did you sustain yourself? And I'm not just talking financially, but I'm talking about. Uh, you know, were you were there were there times during the the the, uh, the course of this three years that you you your two twenty three a.m. moments were like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and you know, but could you just speak into that a little bit about and also a, a, a little bit about how this sort of certainty that that if you went in this direction that you would be supported? Um, you know, it ended up being a really you know, really simple process, and um, um, I, I don't know. I, I just felt very supported all along. So, um, for full transparency, I I did a minimum amount of work um, mm-hmm. to give me a minimum of income, and I'm I'm lucky that I, you know, don't have a a mortgage on my house anymore. And so, you know, it, both my wife and I live a pretty simple life. I you know I don't need yes. I don't need much money, and so I was able to. Um, to find a way to make these, you know, to, to bridge these two or three years with some with some savings and and, and just a little bit of work. Um, yeah. And and by the way, financially it's played out really really nice because now the book is doing really really well and so there's there's some some nice income that is you know coming coming in. So you know I, <laughs> I yeah. feel like the the universe you know has been you know really abundant with me. Um, yeah. But but to the to the other question, the, the non financial question. Um, I've, I've noticed something interesting, which was was really in the, in the kind of an aha for me, uh, which was that um, even though I've never had more uncertainty than I had over the last three years, because you know I, I just know that I was going to write this book, and now this book is out, and I'm still passionate to do a number of things that have to do with the book. But you know what I will do in a year from now or two years from now, I have no really no idea, right? I mean, yeah. there's a few talks and conferences scheduled for next year, but for the rest, I mean, I really have no idea. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised that in a year or two or whatever, you know, uh, you know, life might come knocking at the door again and saying, hey, you know, here, here's something yes. entirely different for you to do again. Um, yes. And so, but what I found is that I've, I strangely have had really actually no anxiety Around this, and and there was puzzling to me. Um, you know, I've never had much, uh, you know, as much uncertainty, and at the same time, I've never had less anxiety around it. And I think it's because mm. there isn't, for the moment, anything more meaningful that I could do than what I'm doing now. So, so you know, for all the years that I was at McKinsey, and even the years I was working as an independent coach, there was always a little voice, you know, in me that was that was just saying, like, is this really it? Yes. You know, there, there was always some daydreaming about some some wonderful project I could be doing or something that would be really meaningful. And, and then I would, you know, go back to my day job, right? And, um, yes. And now I, I don't have this nagging. And if I have this nagging, I just have the total freedom. I'm just so lucky in that for the moment that if I have this nagging, then I'll just do that project. Yes. 
right? Um, mm. And so, so that's the, the strange paradox I've come across is I've never had as much uncertainty, and at the same time, you know, I've, I've never felt more secure um, because I'm just mm. doing right now the most meaningful thing I could imagine. Now, yeah. not on an hour-to-hour basis. I'm, I'm just now reviewing a, a translation of the book into French, which happens to be my native language, and you know, I, I don't really look forward to spending hours rereading that draft, so that's not the most meaningful thing I could imagine you know, doing right now, but it's still linked to, to, yeah. to this project, you know, which is the most, the most meaningful thing yeah. for, for the moment, at least, um, until something, yes. something else comes along. That is a really beautiful answer, and and um, yeah, it's just really delightful. I, I, it, it, it's it sort of trans. It, on one level, it transcends the the, the fairly common answer uh, question that is uh, circulating, which is about um, purpose, and it's not to step over having a purpose. Uh, but there there is um, a subtle distinction, and I think part of that distinction is the most meaningful thing invites the conversation of something greater than yourself. Yes, and and um, I'd never thought about that, but just the way you mention it now brings up something for me. Yes. Which is, I, you know, we, we you know we we often read and, and hear about people saying, you know, you have to find your life's purpose. Yeah. And I find that to be a very very daunting question. Mm-hmm. Right? It's such a grand question. What is my life's purpose? And I, I, I find it such a daunting question that I, I think it, it tends to paralyze people. At, at least I know it has paralyzed me. Yes. What is my purpose? Whereas I find the, the question I stumbled upon at some point, which is, what is the most meaningful thing I can do now? It's a much smaller question. It's, yes. it's not saying that's my purpose for my whole life. That's why I've come, yes. you know, to, mm. to, you know I've, I've come down on earth. You know, it's, it's just... Right now, what is the most meaningful thing? And that might carry me for another six months or a year or two. And I find that that is such, so, you know, a question that's just so much easier to answer and so much easier to, to act upon. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And that's, it will just carry uh, me for a while, and then, and then something new meaningful will come up. And, of course, I have to accept that that means, you know, I live with much more uncertainty, right? It, it, it means yes. that I don't have... A career plan, and that I will have to reinvent my my income every few, every few, few years. So, yeah, yeah, you know, that, yeah. That's granted. Um, hmm. Mm-hmm. I I really really like that. I, it's it's uh it's a it's a lovely uh, distinction, uh, really beautifully said. And I of course I was going to ask the question. <laughs> I, I'm going to sort of come back to this in the in our sort of closing here. I was going to ask the question, what's emerging for you now? I'm going to go back to what you said. You what's starting to emerge? This um, that you're generally a positive person, but this sadness uh, about what we're doing and so on. So do you have? Uh, you kind of answered it. But do you want to speak into anything that is emerging for you in the current, like in the immediate now, um, or or is it really just the continuation of of uh, of uh, unfolding uh, the reinventing organisation work? Um, so definitely, I think that will carry me for for a while longer. Now, how much longer? I don't know. There's some really exciting projects that have come out of it that often have been initiated by readers of the book who've contacted me, and that, that's just so um, mm. delightful. So there's, um, you know, there's one project to, um, for instance, turn this into a, a three-day experiential business game to bring to a business yeah. school so that mm-hmm. students can experience that. And uh, I agreed to participate with this business school to develop it if they, you know, packaged it and open-sourced it so that all other business schools that want to use it can, can, can later use it. Yes. So that's just Lovely. one example of... You know these you know, kind of projects that have come out of the book, and uh, and which I find quite quite exciting. Um, and then there's some other things, just some ideas that that started to emerge, and I don't know if I will if I will ever act on them, if I if, if I will feel that this this next thing I, I would like to do. But um, yeah, just last night, my wife gave me this idea, which I've been really busy with in my head now, which is. You know what? What would the same kind of investigation book be for families? Okay. You know, we've we've you know we've had this very patriarchal model, right? Where oh yes. <laughs> parents kind of hold power over their children, right? In yeah. a way that 
that kind of a boss holds power over their subordinates. And many of us feel that that model isn't quite right yet. Yeah. But, you know, what is the alternative? Those kind of, you know, conceptually, you know, if, what is really the right posture as a parent? Mm. We're not equal to the children. I mean, we're equal in, in value, but we're, we have different roles. And so what, what does that really mean? Um, mm. And practically, you know, what, what, mm. you know what, what could we reinvent um, in just day-to-day the way we are with our children if we really take that, that thinking you know, to, to, its, to its logical conclusion. Mm. And, and there's lots of wonderful practices that are emerging in the world of how to be parents differently. Um, mm. So, you know, that's, that's just one idea. Maybe, maybe that will be something I'd want to explore. All right. Quite a few readers have, have asked me, you know, what would, the, what would the reinventing government mean, you know, reinventing yeah. politics? And we all sense that the, that the current system is reaching its limits, just like our organization are reaching its limits, and that, yeah. you know, as we're transitioning to new the next new stages of consciousness, you know, we will have to reinvent politics. And, and some people are busy with it. You know, what, what would that look like? Um, mm-hmm. And I hope that somebody else, you know, has written something wonderful about it and that I, I don't you know, <laughs> need to spend uh, years researching and, and writing it. But, but you know, so anyway, there, there's, there's lots of there's, topics there's like lots these of, that. There's lots you know, brewing. You mentioned, and I love this, um, I also, in your um, your blog update that you sent out, um, which I'll make sure there's a link for people to read, um, in, in that you mentioned the gift economy, which I'm not going to go into now because that'll take us down a different track. But um, um, you mentioned the, the three-day for the university is open source. And that's an extraordinary position to take. You, you've, you've got a body of, of work. Uh, that that you dedicated a high amount of time on, and this this real um, impulse to have it be open source. So, uh, just if you could just briefly touch on that before we um, sort of wrap this up. Yeah, that, that's been a uh, an interesting journey for, for myself. Um, my my first impulse was other than the book that. Um, you know, that you can buy from Amazon or download from the website, you know. Um, that, you know for the rest, I would just say, hey, you know, everything, you know, is free if you want to do, include this in yeah. the consulting work you want to do, do it. And if, you know, some people have started, you know, designing seminars around it and just said, you know, I, I'm not going to bother with a, a license model. Um, you know, I'm not yeah. going to try to restrict. I mean, the whole point is that these ideas circulate mm-hmm. as widely. I, 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 I'd love... For many more, you know, such wonderful hospitals and schools to emerge. So I'm, you know, the last thing I want to do is restrict with some uh, license mm. system, you know, the spreading of these ideas. Um, and then I've come to see that maybe wasn't fully didn't feel fully right to me either. So it's clear I don't want to do the licensing system. But then I I figured that you know for me, you know, the this paradigm of the gift economy makes a lot of sense. And I've you know it's often called pay what you want, and I, I call it pay what feels right. Um, Pay what you want feels to me a bit, you know, very ego yes. kind of, you know. I just yes. pay whatever I want, yes. um, and uh, so I call it pay, pay what feels right. And so, I, you know, the book is available in this model. If you read electronic books, you can just download it, and then I just ask you to make the commitment a month later to think about, you know, what the book's been worth to you, and to donate back whatever it is. Yeah, um, it can be flowers or cakes, <laughs> and it can be, you know, it can be. Uh, zero if, if it, you know you haven't yes. read the book, or it can be a dollar if you found it um, really uninspiring, or it can be a hundred or a thousand dollars. I mean, whatever you feel is yes. is, is right. And I, I, I was thinking about it. this model also makes sense in the case of the business school. So at first I just said, hey, let's just open source it, make it available on the website to any business school when it's ready. Um, and I still plan to do that, but then again, using uh, suggesting a pay what feels right, so that if other business schools. Um, you know, take this material, organize their own three-day immersive course, and end up finding this mm. wonderful that they could donate, they don't have to, but that they could donate some money that we would then split between, you know, the business school who pioneered it, um, a partner that, you know, has, you know, make, made their, you know, their, their real fine design of all the roll cards and stuff, and me who's contributed the, the you know, the script to these three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that just feels right to me. So, 
you know, there's no license. We, we don't restrict it. We wanted to go out there as much as, as possible. And if people that have the inclination of saying, hey, this was, has been really great, we just want to donate something, that there's a way yes. to do it. So it's, it's yes. not free. It's, it's pay, what you feel, pay what feels right. Mm. <laughs> it is. It, you, you are embodying uh, everything that's in the book, um, which is just extraordinary. And, and uh, I am just so, so delighted that you uh, you were inspired to do this work and that you have dedicated three years to getting this out in the world and I am certainly uh, doing my bit to get this out in the world. It, it, everything that you're doing is so aligned with uh, my impulse behind 2.23 a.m., um, your generosity and um, uh, enormous spirit. You know, it comes across. So I, I just really want to thank you, Frederick, as, not just as Christine McDougall, but as Christine, member of the human race, <laughs> who also has sadness around some of the things that we're doing and so on um, for this just magnificent contribution that you have made. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us on uh, this conversation today. A real pleasure, and I'm looking forward to what will emerge between at the intersection of you know 223 and and this work. Um, oh, thank you, thank you, all the best. Bye. If you want more of 223 AM, then you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the blog of 223AM.com. That's blog.223AM.com, where you'll find articles and interviews featuring stellar guests from around the world, plus tools and resources and much, much more. Follow 223AM on Twitter at twitter.com slash 2 underscore 23AM. That's 2 underscore 23AM. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash 0223AM. Till next time, thank you for listening.